From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. For this episode, I'm excited to bring back Thomas Lavoca from Leap by McKinsey, who was also our very first commentator in episode one with Aaron Tan from Caro. Thomas and I are both entrepreneurs. We have been in Singapore for some time, both launching e-commerce data companies, help incumbents launch new businesses to innovate amidst constant disruption. Thomas, welcome back. Thanks, Drew. Very excited to wrap up the year. And what better idea than to do a season recap of all the learnings from the episodes, including True and Jardines, Globe, venture capital firms such as Sequoia, and disruptors, startups like Caro and Shopback. In our experience, there's a recipe for business building, and there are nuances that incumbents have to take into account when they, when they do the building. Tell us a little bit about what our approach at McKinsey is to business building. Sure. Well, McKinsey is we, we always come up with a very rigorous approach, how to understand problems and what kind of frameworks to use to grasp such complex issues like business, building businesses. So with digital business building within Leap, we have the five B's concept, which is breakout, blueprint, build, boost, and branch. The five stages where you can find yourself as you are building business. In the first stage, the breakout, you are all about uh, generating and prioritizing the, the right ideas. So you're at the stage where you know you want to build something, you want to outperform your competitors, lean on your unfair advantage, but you don't really know what. The second stage where you look at is the blueprint. So you already have an idea what will be the, the business, but you have no minimum viable product that customers really, really love. And you want to assemble a team quickly and validate the key assumptions to really know that the business that you want to build uh, makes sense and customers want it. The first stage is the build. So this is the point where you have the customer value proposition validated. It's proven by the customers. They love it. You want to literally build the business that actually makes money around it. You want to look into the tech. You want to look into the product design and launch it. In the fourth stage, it's boost. So you brought it to the market. You've seen initial tractions. Now you want to make sure you're not letting in the MVP graveyards or even the, the first <laughs> deadly year of the startups of, of you venture, you would really want to make sure you have the product channel fit. Then finally, the last B is branch. And this is the point where you're looking into, am I going to merge the, the new venture which successfully scaled back with my mother company? Am I going to sell it? Am I going to uh, let it on its own uh, trajectory? Great. Let's go through each of the Bs as, as you describe them. In breakout, this is where we decide where to play. And before jumping into design and deciding how to validate a particular value proposition. We really want to take a wide area, a wide look on where to play. And incumbents often find it challenging to get liftoff even from here, right? To get enough capital, to get enough of a runway, to do something ambitious. And in some of our episodes, we've come across this sort of debate around cloning versus creating. And let's jump into one. We have a quote here from our episode with Caro, and then let's, let's have a, a reaction to that. Sounds good. Let's listen. I personally don't think that there is a good need to say that, oh, let's be super innovative and come up with something that is entirely unique. I think there are gaps in the market, not that all gaps is equally translatable. 
And that's where you come in as, a, as an entrepreneur or as someone that actually understands Southeast Asia to understand, okay, where's the opportunity? How is the risk like? Is this a potentially big enough opportunity in Southeast Asia? Does this particular culture or this particular need exist in Southeast Asia? And if so, is there an incumbent? If there's no incumbent, why, right? So Thomas, I'm definitely in this camp that you can out-execute the competition and localize a concept that doesn't exist yet in a market uh, like Singapore or Southeast Asia. What are your thoughts on, on what Aaron mentioned? And how do you see incumbents sort of approach this? Any insights there? I do see with some of the incumbents is that they're trying to overcomplicate things. And um, often you, what you see is this like overanalyzing and overindexing. We have to invent something that nobody's ever, ever thought of, right? It's just like, I, I'll reinvent the wheel all over again, you know, from the first bolts. And this is also where a lot of the momentum is lost. What you hear from the, the snippet with Aaron is, hey, you know what? <laughs> Don't overthink. Uh, you look into the models that worked, yeah, they'll work somewhere else, then go very close to the customer and you have an unfair advantage, just go for it. Adjust the model based on the local market and execute fast. And that is what I believe is a recipe for success than, than trying to reinvent the ball. And like you said, we don't have to overcomplicate it. And it doesn't take that long, right? It can be you know, four to six weeks and you can come up with a, a portfolio of potential ideas that are inspired by looking outside the market, you know, looking at ideas, startups that are getting massive scale and massive valuations and see how you might be able to localize it. And at the end of the four weeks, incumbents really need to have this sort of portfolio approach to business building, because I think the last 10 years, a lot have tried these like one MVP at a time. And then all of a sudden, two years, three years, four years have gone by and they, they haven't seen any major liftoff from some of their their build, business building efforts, what, what what are your thoughts on the the portfolio idea of, of business building? Oh, that's an interesting one, right? And actually, even before you go to the portfolio, you have to decide that build, building a business is, is a priority. Like we we ran the new business building survey earlier this year amongst the incumbents, the percentages of respondents saying that you know building new businesses, whether it's one or portfolio, went from thirty to actually over fifty percent end of last year. So I think the determination to do this and do this right is the first step. The second one, you know, do you do portfolio or single one? I I kind of struggle, right? I think there's a a merit to doing a portfolio at the beginning, then uh, we're trying to test where you have the highest resonance with the market. But then I also see that you know you want to double down on somewhere and, and go as far as you can before you start diversifying. Let's dig into the next B you mentioned was blueprint, which is you know once you kind of narrow down and, and you want to commit on what to build. We've had several conversations, I think with, with Glenn um, from from Globe, we we dug into this on what are some of the the things to make the blueprint part really stick, and you know how do you how do you approach your team and how do you approach caring about your customers? Let's have a quick listen to what Glenn says. It's a Filipino word called malasakit, and I guess for me the English translation is caring or you really care. It's not just enough to be passionate about something, but you have to care. And if you care for something or someone, whether it be your customers, your company, you'll act accordingly. I think what Glenn is mentioning is, you know, caring about the customer, caring about your employee. And, you know, there's been a lot of investment around design in the last several years. What's your take on on design? How have how have incumbents been able to to really adopt it, and w- how far do you think they've come with it? I think what we've seen over the over the years is you went from design. This is you know that that creative guy in sneakers walking in the office and making a nice logo to something that 
uh, it's at the very beginning of ideating through the validation all the way to build. It's, it's an integral and crucial part of business building. So what this ultimately means is you're able to empathize, you're able to listen to the pain points, and so you're able to care about what the customers want. And then that is the really crucial skill set, you're able to translate the the signals that you get from customers into a specific features, into specific solutions that you then build into a business. And you run this loop over and over again. This is where we see the most mature organizations moving in, but I don't think we are there yet across the field. What have you seen across the incumbents over the past years and how does that resonate with you, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, design is at the end of the day, a capability. It's a craft it's not a phase, you know, so I think sometimes incumbents treat design as like a phase, you know, you do something in the first, you know, month or two months, and then you're off to, you know, building and writing code and, and building uh, the, the the new platform or launching the new business. So it's got to be something that endures beyond just blueprint and build, you know, into boost, into like really scaling the business. I think the, the heavy lifting with the design is to, yes, it's to empathize with customers, listen to them, listen to stakeholders. Yeah, and it's very interesting when you link it to value. Within uh, McKinsey, we actually published a business value of design where we link the organization's that designs actions into actually increased financial performance. And it's it's significant. And I think this is the point where you, you really start winning the, the, the leaders of the organizations and not just, you know, not just those that intuitively get it, where it's already embedded in a culture like what we've heard from Glenn. But, uh, you know, when, when you put a number behind it and you, you, you actually translate it um, you know, this simple fact, look, if you have this capability in your team and you, you're rigorous about constantly translating the signals and the, and, and the messages from the customers, you, you're going to in, in, improve and increase your financial performance. And that is, I think, where we really start driving it home. Yeah, and, that, and that's a great segue. You know, the, the link to value of design to something quantitative and, and we get into the next B around build. And the reason why that's important, the link to value of design to output in the build stage is getting to product market fit, which is a term that, you know, can have a million different definitions, but often incumbents focus on launching the new business, not necessarily being obsessed and focused on getting to initial traction or some kind of predictable revenue or predictable growth, you know, what we refer to as product market fit. Let's jump into a quote from Vern from True and let us have a reaction to that. If you think about the original idea of setting up a startup outside of the corporate, it's actually largely driven by the problem of scale. The spin-off is a setup to solve a certain problem of scale, which makes it a bit different from a real startup in the sense for a real startup growth is Number one, you can like is the primary objective. You you have to find your way to break even to profitable self-funding. There, there's no other choice. Nobody would argue like, aren't we getting too big now? A corporate spin-off, it's a it's a fine balancing act. Of course, growth is important. You have to go forward. It's there. But think about it. If you if you become then too big too fast again, you will find yourself in the situation where you wanted to run away from. So, you know, I, I love the, the, this interview with Bern because basically what he's, he's sharing is that a incumbent who launches a startup uh, will often do it as, as a spinoff. And what was interesting about True is that they built their analytics business almost as a, a completely separate organization where they put the pressure of the, of the market on themselves to prove themselves. So it wasn't just proving themselves internally. 
it was proving themselves to the external market to reach some level of traction. And I think that was a, a clever way to to show that they could get to product market fit. Thomas, share with us, what are some indicators you look for when you think of a startup or you know, whether it was one of your own or with an incumbent, what are some leading indicators of traction or product market fit? I really love the way how, how Ben's is thinking about this. And I think it was a very clever way how you can really ensure that the company succeeds. And it's really pushing it out all in the water and make sure, making sure that you can swim. Uh, the product market fit, but it can be broken down into, into a few indicators. One that I really love to look at is NPS, Net Promoter Score. And with that, finding out you know how many people really love you, would recommend you to use for their uh, for their friends, for for their colleagues. But if you invert that, how many how many percentage of customers would miss you? And this missing part is, is a great one, right? So I've, I've heard metrics like 40, 60%, but it has to be significant. And then the second one is looking into your ability to scale without burning a lot of money, right? So if you look into not just the product market fit, but kind of product channel fit, that, that point where you're able to acquire customers at the rate which is sustainable and your economics, you know, the economics work and, and you just can continue growing. But there's, there's quite a few more. Andrew, what, what are your, what have you used on that? What I think about in terms of traction or product market fit is some, some evidence of uh, predictable growth, uh, you know, especially from like a customer experience, right? So um, the famous one from, from Facebook was something like, you know, Facebook knew that they were going to, you know, really scale and beat MySpace back in the day when they they knew in a predictive way they, that each new customer that connected to seven friends within 10 days would become, you know, high growth or, you know, very sticky customers. And, and each business has some kind of North Star metric like this that that can be measured as um, to predict, you know, the cohort of customers that become very sticky or versus the cohort of customers. And I found what's actually amazing is if you get really close to the customers and you, you look into their behavior, you, you start understanding what is that tipping point, right? So I, I remember, you know, like when Uber Grab were, were launching in this region, they were obsessed about uh, users to try the, the app three times, right? If you try it the first time, you walk away. If second time, you're not sure. But you know what? Like the third time you're in, you're there. And that's the product market fit, right? But the product market fit you, you hit when the experience becomes part of your daily commute. And that North Star metric definition is really key uh, when you are looking into product market fit, because it's going to be different for you. It's going to be different for me. Yeah. And, and that's a great segue to the next B, which is boost, which is once you have product market fit, how do you really scale it? You know, I mean, and, and by the way, getting to product market fit's not easy, you know, so, so for the small number of incumbents that do get there and they can show some kind of predictable traction, then it's like, how do you really raise the volume and, and scale? Let's hear a, a quick quote from, from Peter Kemp's from Sequoia. Even though you're not pushing the portfolio company on their revenue, you are looking at the economics of growth, right? No, that's correct. And it has to be said that there is a trade-off and a strategic perspective there, right? We have a lot of companies where we know what the monetization lever is going to be, but at board level, there's a conscious decision sometimes to delay that and to say, hey, let's continue to focus on growth. We think we're doing well on, on growing some of these leading indicators and we'll wait, we'll delay that gratification of revenue and we'll, we'll consciously decide when to switch that on, right? And, and very often in these markets, it's very important to quickly build supply or quickly build demand and go for some sort of like market share grab, which might mean that you delay revenue a bit longer than you normally do. But many examples in our portfolio and outside our portfolio have shown, you know, that that turns out to be a good strategy. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is a, a big topic between startups and incumbents, right? You know, chasing growth versus you know the PNL. And I like what Peter's saying here in that you know the, the the startups are like obsessing about their leading indicators of growth, and and the board will lay off them, right? Where do you fall on this? You know, like growth versus PNL. Ah, that's that's a, that's a really big one, right? I think it starts. Either when when you're building a business, you have to commit, right? You have to start orienting yourself around the right North Star, the product market fit. The challenging part here is that, you know, it's easy to fall into the startup uh, mode of I'll just raise a bunch of money and with that burn a bunch of money and basically buy customers, but, you know, not, not profitably. I don't buy the premise of let's just you know, buy growth at the growth costs. You know, I think what what's really matters is that you you are able to tap into a channel that that scales. A lot of the incumbents they start with the unfair advantage. They start with the base of customers. They scale on that, and that's where they stop. And that's also where the business stops. So it is something that we've seen. Over and over again, it's really like one of the key topics that uh, underperforming businesses struggle. It is, it is very obvious. So where are the times where you see this, the incumbents doing it right, Andrew? And, and how shall the incumbents be thinking about this? I think incumbents have a lot of advantages. Uh, even if they launch a new business, they'll have a huge database of customers, maybe not related to that, that new business, but definitely can be a channel to help them acquire customers. Where, where I see the incumbents struggle is, is that they, they should take a, a little bit sharper look at the playbook of the startup, not not to buy growth, because I don't agree with that either. But, you know, even channels like a referral program, you know, you'd be surprised how many incumbents don't have that, right? And in and, and the last two businesses we've launched in, in Southeast Asia, whenever we've launched a referral program, it beco- it starts to drive, you know, somewhere between 20 to 30% of all new daily customers, right? Wow. And, and it becomes a massive channel, you know, relying on on your own first party data to drive growth and, and not doing anything, you know, complicated. It's just that it's like an Uber style uh, or a type of referral program where both sides get some kind of benefit. But I'd love to see incumbents adopt some of those methods versus just, you know, trying to buy growth methods. So there's a first level, right, which is, okay, let's just not buy growth. The second is you're leaning on top of your product market fit, but then you have a third stage. And this is the point where you can be actually a lot more thoughtful about about growing. This is where you really look into your MarTech. You know, you look into your right team, like, like processes, how do you run uh, agile marketing? And Andrew, I know you're very passionate about this topic. What is your take on this? Yeah, definitely. I, I could talk about this all day long, but you know, because of COVID nineteen, right? We're seeing these massive shifts in customer preferences. Uh, the 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 way they consume media, the, the way they consume digital services, the way they discover new services, and like you mentioned, incumbents have to adopt this sort of agile marketing way of working. It's it's definitely a new capability. The best way to think about why this capability is different is that marketing teams now are what we call growth teams. They have to manage different types of what we call backlogs, the marketing backlog, which is your list of uh, campaigns across paid media and owned media and earned media, your product backlog, which is, you know, like developing a referral program. You've got your your research backlog where you, you still have to have the pulse on the customer in boost to understand how to tweak and how to update, not just the, the, the product and the features itself, but the, the content and the, um, the the types of campaigns that you're launching. And then the tech backlog, we could have a whole hour just on that because there's a lot of acronyms and things to, to demystify. Um, but Boost is really about 
nailing the new ways of working around agile marketing and then experimenting, you know, just like in like, like in the build phase where you have to be, you know, very lean. You need to be this way also in boost, but have a different type of team that's independent and attacking these different types of backlogs. So true, right? And I, I, I do recall this this fantastic research that you've done on new business building. And what we saw is that the moments you have the right team, you would have twice as high a chance to, to succeed. And you have to see how the the talent within marketing's just evolved so rapidly over the past years. This is not your creative guy, you know, doing banners. You go from the creative to the deep analytical to data to tech and engineering and all of it at the same time. This is completely different different ball game. Yeah, exactly. And the culture on this type of team is, you know, people that get excited about obsessing over the leading indicators to growth, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, lifetime value of the customer, customer churn, cost of acquisition. And this this incumbent has launched this very successful startup. It takes us to the last B, which is branch. And this is this is what's um, unique to the incumbent is that they, if they build something that's working, they have to decide how it's going to enable the core business. And you know, let's hear from uh, Anne O'Riordan in our episode with Jardines on on this topic. Back in February of 2018, Astra invested about 150 million dollars into GoCheck Series E fundraising round, and then we did a follow up investment in March 2019. Astra has a very large business in car dealerships in Indonesia, and they basically had you know the offline transportation market uh, in Indonesia, a large portion of it. But with this new ride sharing and new ways of looking at transportation, it really was an opportunity for Astra to learn. And as the two companies got to know each other well, uh, they noticed that there was an opportunity for the offline to online to come together. So Astra then launched with GoCheck a company called GoFleet. So for Astra, it's an opportunity to be able to participate in that growing new economy uh, with uh, capabilities that they've been generating for years. And Anne is referring to Astra uh, out of Indonesia, which is a large automotive conglomerate uh, of which Jardines is one of the the, the major uh, investors. And what I like what Anne is raising here is a large organization like Astra, you know, combines with Gojek to launch something like GoFleet. And at the end of the day, uh, Astra learns uh, from GoFleet on how to operate uh, the, the core business. And I think it's a good way to think about branch in that, you know, when the incumbent launches a new business, do it in a way where the CEO and the board is giving space to the startup, but also where the, the startup within the incumbent is is giving back to the core. And, and don't have to, you know, think of the startups in your marketplace as the disruptors. You You can find ways to to launch new things with them and and accelerate uh, what the what those learnings can be in the core. Yeah, that, that's right, right. And I think a couple of points were quite interesting. The first one, which you what you could do is you try to capture value by investing, right? You you see someone you know going up uh, as a superstar unicorn, you want to capture the value, and that's the that's the easy step in a sense. The second one, what I've heard you say, Andrew, is that you you start learning. Right, so you start looking into okay. This is not just about me participating on on an increase on 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 revenues. It's actually I can I can learn quite a bit from from this unicorns. And I find the the, the really intriguing part where we hear Anna talking about what I would say is the third stage of value capture. Right, which is you start looking into the the prospective synergies in your company, and you start looking into the creating of new ventures or new types of collaborations that could 
further enhance what you already have and the, the new unfair advantages of, of the company that you either build or invested, right? I would say the highest level of maturity that we've seen. And this is really when you start reaping the, the, the biggest benefits of your newly, newly minted venture. Yeah. And, and I think this is a great place to, to end things in that, you know, with what Anne is saying about JV and the ecosystem reminds me what Aaron said about not overcomplicating business building. Right. And why should an incumbent look at a major unicorn that doesn't exist inside their market, JV with them to accelerate, you know, time to market, to accelerate learnings and to accelerate capabilities into the core business. And, and, you know, it's all in a theme of like, we don't need to overthink business building. It's really about, you know, making decisions, making commitment, and then, you know, going big where, where, where you can. That's right. And you know what, with that, I was just reading the article where Carl is looking into getting their wholesale digital banking license. Wow. Okay, <laughs> I just can't wait right. for that disruption. Yeah. <laughs> Some fun times ahead. Yeah. They just keep jumping into new areas. It's, it'll be exciting to do more of this, Thomas. You know, this, this year, uh, we've been able to launch this podcast, you know, despite obstacles of being in quarantine. So looking forward to, to 2021 and, and more of this with you. Absolutely. Looking forward, my friend. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.